If you want to turn with me, I'm in the book of Hosea. And that's one of those books that, you know, you kind of flip a few pages and pretend like you're there because you never really find it. But a good way to find that book would be to open your Bible to the middle and then uh, start turning the pages to the left. And uh, you'll, you'll gradually get to Ezekiel and then Daniel. Uh, then you'll come to Hosea. And if you, if you get to Joel, you have gone too far. The book of Hosea, written by the prophet Hosea, approximately 715 B.C., covering a period from 753 to to 715. Uh, By way of review to catch you all up, God has called Hosea the prophet to deliberately marry a woman who will be unfaithful to him. All right, did you hear that? God deliberately called Hosea to marry a woman that would be unfaithful to him. And her name is the lovely Miss Gomer. (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, This woman literally sells herself to false lovers. She's chasing after something. Uh, But in doing this, she's a testimony to the Jews, specifically in the northern kingdom, of one, their great unfaithfulness toward God, and two, God's relentless love for them. Now, doesn't that sound like our story today? And I think we heard Alan express that this morning, that uh, the same kind of concept, to, to hear it expressed in terms that relate to us, that we tend towards unfaithfulness to our first love, toward God, our Creator. But God is relentless in His love for us. Is anybody glad for God's relentless love this morning? Uh, yeah, all right. I hope so. Yeah, you give God glory for that if you're glad for God's relentless love. Absolutely. Now, as we come to chapter 4, and you're going to notice that I'm doing a little bit more jumping around. I honestly hope that I could teach this Uh, the book of Hosea in two weeks. I'm not taking it uh, verse by verse like I do other books. And the reason is because there's so much redundancy in these books as God emphasizes things again and again. So today we're going to be jumping around a little bit. You want to be ready, ready with your pages if you're going to keep up with me. But the story of Hosea and Gomer kind of fades into the background when we come to chapter 4. And now we move into God's word as to why he allowed this to happen and what the message of Hosea's life is conveying uh, to the people. And just as in chapters 1 through 3, we see Gomer's unfaithfulness in three different situations. So here we see three cycles uh, that unfold. And I want to give those cycles to you right up front. Two of them I think we'll get to today, and then the next one we'll have to come back to next week. Cycle number one. This takes us from chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 3. This is highlighted unfaithfulness on behalf of the northern kingdom. Then we get over to cycle 2, chapter 6, verse 4, through chapter 11, verse 11, which is highlighted consequences for this unfaithfulness to God. Then we get to cycle 3, which is chapter 11, verse 12, to the end of the book, which is Again, God's heart emphasized in a strong way. We're going to hear this great heart of love next week as it's highlighted restoration. Okay, those three things. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 17, and you will see a name there 
And that is the name Ephraim. Do you see that? Okay, Ephraim, do you see it? Chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, Ephraim is the name given, in fact, it's, it was the strongest tribe of the northern kingdom, the most significant tribe, uh, named after one of Jacob's 12 sons, all 12 tribes named after a son, but this is, of course, after the son Ephraim right here. Every time from now on in the study of this book that you see the name Ephraim or you see the word him connected to Ephraim, then you know that God is talking about the northern kingdom, okay, which is Israel proper. And you also know that this is the focal point for spiritual unfaithfulness, spiritual idolatry in Israel. Okay, very, very, very important. So let's get this going. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, highlighted unfaithfulness. The prophet Hosea speaking for God. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, which could be translated mercy, no acknowledgement of God. Now circle that word acknowledgement and uh, your Bible may have a different word there. We will come back to it. This is the state of the northern kingdom Israel as opposed to the southern kingdom Judah. All right. Now jump ahead to verse 12. Halfway through the verse. Look what it says. Hosea the prophet speaking to the people says, A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Now go ahead to chapter 5, verse 4. Okay, Halfway through the verse, notice the words. A spirit of prostitution is in their hearts. They do not acknowledge the Lord. All right, let's tear these verses apart for just a little bit. Very important verses here. The word acknowledge uh, used there. Uh, is a very, very, very poor, poor word. Back to chapter 6, verse 3, the word acknowledgement, very poor translation because that word is built off of the root word yada. Okay? And yada has very little to do with a head knowledge, but what it has everything to do with is what we would call the intimate embrace. Get those two words, the intimate embrace. Very significant words in understanding what God wants with us, what he wants in our lives. The best picture would be uh, the picture of a couple who are magically in love with each other and, and, and they, they, they hold each other in deep affection. Okay, very important. The first time the word appears is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where the Bible says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Adam yadad his wife, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. This is what this means for you and me. And I know, men, in our toughness, we have trouble with the word intimate, but you just got to get over it, okay? Because the reality is, God wants to be so connected to you that the product of that love, of of that relationship, is that your life brings forth fruit in character with who God is. 
Very, very important. Too much of church is about coming, coming to a place, making this huge commitment and this big promise of all the things that we're going to do from God. Yet the reality is, just as Eve was intimately connected to Adam and as a result bore a son, so God wants to be so intimately connected to you that you are bringing forth fruit that isn't characteristic of you, but instead is characteristic of the living God. This is huge, and it's rooted in the word yada. So the application right here is, do you know him? Does he know you? Because my greatest fear as pastor is that we would develop a group of people that are establishing head knowledge for God, but don't truly yada him, that aren't experiencing the intimate embrace. And boy, we can get in programs and, uh, and learn a ton of scriptures, yet never know the author. And we can come to church every week and wear the right clothes, say the right things, ban ourselves from the right stuff, and never have an intimate relationship with God, never experience the intimate embrace. And friends, what we do not need today in the Western church of our world is another mechanical, cold, stale form of religion. We need intimacy with him. I don't know how in all my zeal as a young believer, I could hear that and affirm that and miss that, honestly. Now, those two verses, I want to continue tearing them apart. 4 verse 12, 5 verse 4. A spirit of prostitution. A spirit of prostitution. Probably makes you really uncomfortable in church. A spirit of of prostitution. You need to hear it. It's the the Hebrew word ruach. It means a breath or a wind. You know, when God created Adam and Eve, he breathed into them life, and that life was nafak. It was a, a different type of life. But in this fallen world, there are these spirits at work whose desire is to try to convince us that what we need is some other breath. And so we chase after this breath that will not satisfy. And generally, those false breaths are rooted in, in three things. Uh, our need for security, our need for satisfaction, and our need for significance. And because we need, we think we need, from other than God, security, satisfaction, and significance, we hear the wooing of these false spirits, and we tend to... To be drawn to them, like the sirens in Homer's, Homer's writings, calling us to our death. This is what this is talking about right here. But notice in those verses that it says, this spirit of prostitution leads them astray. So it's a deceiving spirit. Hugely important. In fact, much of comedy that I see in movies and programs today is rooted in mocking the true spirit in order to get people to buy into the deceiving spirit. And then it says uh, in 5 verse 4, they capture our hearts. They capture our affections. This is how they lead us astray, deceiving us and capturing our affections. And when that happens... When we give in to their temptations, suddenly we find ourselves in uh, spiritual, physical, 
and emotional bondage. We make all sorts of commitments to God of how we're going to live life differently, but an honest assessment says we can't break these spirits. And this is why when Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, he very specifically included these words, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Oh man, has this prayer become so central in me because I recognize that there's parts of Mike Descoli that will not change. God, deliver me from all evil. Deliver me, you are the deliverer. Deliver me from all things that are contrary to you. And in that deliverance, experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine. The wrong sources, the wrong spirits, don't get drunk on that stuff, which leads to debauchery, which leads to excess, which leads to excessive behavior, that we're doing things that we don't want to do. But instead, be filled, and, and I love the verb tense there because it's a continuous verb tense, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where we're supposed to live. And then, of course, I can't help but not say Jesus' words that we hear around here so often. If anyone is thirsty, would you read them with me? I think they're there. Let's read them together. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, Streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, continually drinking of the Spirit. Recognizing our thirst and continually drinking of the Spirit. Can you imagine a life that rather than determining that you're going to do life different, that suddenly you're surprised because you're doing something different? <laughs> and the only thing you can say in that is glory to God because you recognize that that is not you, but that's Him. Can you imagine that kind of life? That's what this is talking about. My friend, it's not about you determining. It's about you connecting. Lord, I can't do this. How desperately I need your help. Okay, I said I'm going to jump around a little bit, so now I need you to go back to chapter 4, verse 4. This is the word of God. The prophet says this, Hosea chapter 4, verse 4, But let no man bring a charge, let no man accuse another. And, and why is that? Because if you back up to chapter 4, verse 1, you see there that none of us has, has been faithful. So how can we point the finger at someone else when we ourselves have a problem? All right? But then he gives a very specific thing here. He says, But let no man bring a charge, let no man accuse another, for your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. There's a very specific reason for that statement. When Jeroboam, and I mentioned Jeroboam last week, the only king initially mentioned in the book of Hosea, even though there were a number of kings, when he became king of the northern kingdom, he established his own religion. And when he established that religion, the true priests, the priests that truly yadad the Lord, knew the Lord. Get that word yadah. If you get out of here with nothing else, get intimate embrace. Get yadah, okay? So the true priest who knew the Lord, who experienced that intimate embrace, they fled the northern kingdom 
to the southern kingdom. So what's Jeroboam to do? I mean, he's got this, his own religion now. He needs priests to run the religion. So rather than finding priests who knew the Lord, he begins to appoint false priests who don't know the Lord. And this is very concerning in our world and in our church today that we've got people representing God who don't even know him. And they know all the law, but they don't know the Lord. We've got people sitting in our churches that can impose, 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 but they don't really know the Lord. They don't yadah him. They don't know him. And now we've got these false priests. They feel pretty good about this position. The king appointed them. They like it. They get a little attention here, but they need credibility. So what do they have to do to gain credibility? They start speaking ill of the priests who fled. And so what we have here is we have the more guilty accusing the less guilty. And as a result, the people are no better than those priests. But the pressure of God is put on the leadership. Look at verse uh, 6 of that chapter, chapter 4. My people, God talking, my people are destroyed from lack of, and man, we see that word knowledge and we totally miss it. Because all of a sudden we think, if I only knew the word of God better, and that's not what it's talking about. What's it talking about? It's talking about, what's that word? Yadah. What's the two words to define that word? Intimate embrace. My people are destroyed because they have a mechanical form of religion, a cold mechanical form of religion, but they do not have a relationship with God. Wow. Don't blame the people for what's happening. Look at those who are leading them. Someone said this, as goes spiritual leadership, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes morality. And as goes morality, so goes the nation. And just by way of application right here, it is so time for the church to stop pointing its finger at the world and highlighting what's wrong with the world. The world's only doing what the world knows best to do. But instead, for the church to start looking at themselves and asking God, what's wrong with the church? Now, as soon as I say that, immediately someone starts thinking about some kind of building or institution we call the church, right? But that's not what it means. The word uh, ecclesia means congregation, it means the assembly, it means us. What's wrong with the assembly of believers? And then you look a little further and you have to say, it must start with those in positions of leadership who don't truly know the Lord. We need to know Him. And when we see our world and our country falling apart, rather than pointing the finger at somebody, or a finger at somebody, we need to say, I need to get better connected if anything's going to change. Yeah. All right, let's go to chapter 6. Um, by the way, if you read chapter 5, you'll find there that because of the choices of parents in not knowing God, when it talks about destruction, it says the children are giving themselves to prostitution as well, to, to unfaithfulness. 
And my friends, what kind of heritage and foundation are we giving our kids? Are we giving them the spirit of God or are we giving, giving them false sources of security, significance, and satisfaction? Very important. All of this shows us that, that we need to be delivered. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you can check that out later. But here we are, chapter 6, uh, verse 4. Oh, wait. Did I get that wrong? 6, verse 1. Excuse me. Now, <clears throat> looking at chapter 6, uh, verse verse 1, it's going to give a strong appearance that the, the people of Israel are truly repenting, all right, but, but they're not. So this is why we keep these verses in this section, the first three verses in this section of highlighted unfaithfulness. So watch how this unfolds. This is the people talking. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will restore us. There is some truth and prophecy in that, that the Jews have suffered for 2,000 years, but in the third millennia, they will be delivered. But you've got to remember, they're speaking out of the flesh here, okay? Uh, so restore us so that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Same word, let us know the Lord. Let us press on and acknowledge him, press on to acknowledge him, to know him. Sounds good. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Okay, so nice. It sounds beautiful, but God's response is, yeah, right. And here's why. Look at this. Going to verse 4. Highlighted consequences, cycle 2. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist that the early, or, or like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Okay, you see clouds in the morning, and you hear the weatherman say there's going to be some clouds in the morning, but when the sun comes up, it'll burn them off. All right, dew. There's dew on the grass, sun comes up and burns it off. It's like making a promise that's here one moment, but the next moment it's, it's evaporated, like it didn't really matter. And this is what God is saying. You make these promises, but they mean nothing, okay? Yeah. Therefore, and this consequences, and, and militarily these terms sound bloody, but they're not. All of this has to do with the word of God and the prophets, okay? Very important. Therefore, I will cut you I will, I, I will cut you in pieces with my prophets. Prophets is tools. I, will, I, I, I killed you with the words of my mouth, God's proclamations. In my judgments, flashlight lightning upon you. So God speaks truth. Truth convicts us. And as a result of disobedience to God, we face horrible consequences. What's wrong with the confession that's given in verses 1 through 3? Well, to be very honest with you, it's because it has everything to do with self, with me, what I want, and it has nothing to do with God's glory, and it has nothing to do with understanding God's heart, and therefore it has nothing to do with intimate embrace. And as we've seen so many times, there is no remorse in this they are only looking for something for themselves go to verse 10 god expresses this very specifically when he says 
Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him or earnestly seek him would be a better translation for that. Okay, so let's look at their spirit here. Okay, in, in chapter 6, verse 1. Let's go to God so he'll heal us. We don't want to know him. We want to be healed. Uh, verse 2, a quick fix. Just a day or two if we return to him and everything will be okay. And then if you look at verse 3, you see this mechanical faith that says that we want God to be this guaranteed slot machine that we know for sure that if we just put a nickel in, God will give us a dollar back every time. That's what we want from God. That's the kind of God that we want. Now, go ahead to chapter 10, uh, verse 13. Halfway through the verse, God says, continues to talk about them. He says, they speak lies against me. They're pretenders here. Uh, 10, verse 16, they do not turn to the Most High. And, and we can look at this and say, maybe they're turning to something, but what they're turning to is some neutered little form of God, small g, that they can control and that will help them achieve what they want to achieve. So what prevented God from helping these people is that they want God to act on their terms. And friends, that's arrogance to think we can tell God what God should do. And let's not reduce the most high to some little form that we can be comfortable with and live with with some uh, demonstration of this little box that we keep on a mantle that helps us to feel like we're really good people because we're so religious. Wow. You good? Does anybody here feel like you're being hammered today? Because if you're not seeing the love of God in this, then, then I've got, I better quit and go home because, because well, let's, let's keep going because you'll see it in a greater way. It's about their unfaithfulness. And so we have to ask the question, okay, what does God want, really? Back up, chapter 6, verse 6. Look at what God desires. God says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and that you know me rather than that you give burnt offerings. Do we really want to know God? Do we really want to know God's heart? And if we really want to know God and we really want to know God's heart, then we can't help but look at a passage like this and see God doesn't want our rituals. God does not want our determinations. God does not want all of our disciplines. But what God wants is for us to know him. What God doesn't want is for us to look at him like some, some kind of cosmic slot machine that we put a nickel in and get a guarantee back every time. Okay, that's so important. What God wants from us is mercy. Mercy. Uh, it's really one... Uh, one word in the, in the original language anyway, it's a word that means kindness. Does anybody here need God's kindness? 
Does anybody here need God's mercy? And so what God says, if you really want to know what I want, then understand what you need most for me, from me, and then make it your determination to be sure that you are being that for other people. Did you hear that? If, if what you need from me most is kindness, then make sure what you're giving to other people is kindness. Make that your goal. And somehow in church, we've, we've created all these rules and laws and expectations of what people are supposed to do. And we have people who are known in restaurants as being the poorest tippers in town. We're not mercy givers. Uh, we're more like prudes. And the world looks at us and they don't see any salt. They don't see any light. And they say, I'm, they're no better than me. They're a bunch of hypocrites. I don't, I don't need that. And what it's rooted in, and it's spelled out very clearly, is in Revelation chapter 2, okay? And I have the references here for us today. God talking to the church at Ephesus, commending them for their hard work and all of their discipline, which was a beautiful picture of the Church of the West. He says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Wow, great church. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And can we see it in there? We do all this hard work for God, all these disciplines. We get worn out doing good things for God, and we miss out on the yada. We miss out on the intimate embrace. Oh, God, deliver us from mechanical, cold, stale religion that is rooted in performance and help us to know you and to know your heart. Is anybody here tired of religious systems that fail you and ready for a dynamic relationship with the living God? Yeah, me too, me too. Is anyone here ready to become a recipient of God's mercy so that you can be a vehicle through which God extends mercy to others. Yeah, me too, me too. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in a person's life, so that the only thing that we can say is glory to God. But we protest, you know, and... Well, let me just say this, and we'll come back to that. Israel misses this, and therefore they go through 2,700 years of difficult times. People look at the Jews, uh, and they, they say, why have the Jews suffered so much? And what we see here is that it's rooted in them disconnecting themselves from a proper relationship with God. God longing to bless them, but they disconnecting themselves intentionally. And we'll see that more as we go. But in chapter 10, verse 12, God tells them, if you want, truly, if you want me, then here's what you need to know, all right? So here's what you need to know. Uh, he says, so, S-O-W, scattering seed, planting a crop. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness, 
reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground, which you know I love the word fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness upon you. Now, I don't have a green thumb. In fact, you might say I have a really brown thumb, okay? And that's just the way I'm created. We don't have a lot of plants in our house. But I do know this. I do know that if I expect to raise tomatoes, that I probably should go and get tomato seeds, all right? Now, that just, that just makes sense. But in verse 12, God gives specific instructions on how to reap a harvest of unfailing love and it's rooted in this one word in the 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 hebrew language it's the word mercy which we could also use kindness and favor here okay and we've seen this morning that there are those of us here who have a sense that what we really need is god's mercy we really need god's love okay so if we want that then what is it we're supposed to to plant we are supposed to plant righteousness what is that righteousness? It's mercy, not sacrifice. It's acknowledgement of God rather than suffering. God is simply saying that we need to be for other people what we need God to be for us. Love your neighbor as yourself is giving to other people what we need from God most. But here's the reality of that. We hear it and we protest. And we say, listen, this business about loving my enemy, there is no way I will ever love someone who harms my children. There's no way I will ever forgive someone who harms my children. Is this reasonable? Is this reasonable? There's no way I will ever forgive someone who harms my children. We say that. But what God is saying is right there where you say, there's no way I'll ever forgive someone who harms my children. God is saying, and that's right. And the reason is because you haven't arrived to the level of love that I live at. Because as God, I forgive those who harm my children. In fact, it was your rebellion that put my son Jesus on the cross. He wouldn't go there otherwise and so what this shows is is an important question you can't forgive a person who harms your children but do you desire to become like God and if God were to infuse you with a capacity to forgive someone who harms your children are you willing to walk in that kind of power and right there anyone who wants to undermine God you should say to them hold on God's love is so great that he forgives people who harm his children and so if we want to be like him, this is a picture of what that means. Now, I think it's important to say when we forgive, I mean, it's not like we check our brains at the door, all right? Forgiveness does not mean we suddenly forget what they've done to us, right? Forgiveness doesn't mean that we immediately trust them and allow them now to be the babysitter of our children, right? It doesn't mean that, right? Forgiveness doesn't mean that we fail to hold them accountable for their actions. I've hired two lawyers in my lifetime because I knew if I didn't hold those people accountable, they would do the same thing to other people. And so we must be held accountable, but what forgiveness means is we let go of our right to control them and be vengeful toward them, but instead look for ways to continue to extend kindness to them. You okay with that? 
man, did I kill you guys this morning? Oh, is this boring? I'll just take a nap. This is good stuff. Uh, you know, I am, I am so convinced that by teaching the Bible one book at a time, we cover all the essentials of what God needs us to know. Okay, so you could go to a church that all they're doing is they're coming up with themes, you know, touchy-feely themes, and so forth and so on. And I'm not dogging that, but I think God, when we teach through the scriptures, he speaks to all of our needs, and what we really need is him. Well, I want to bring this to a close, so we're going to go to chapter 11 here. <clears throat> chapter 11, God speaking tenderly to these unfaithful people. This is what's happening here. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I that taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. And that's an image of them being delivered from uh, Egypt and God feeding them manna in the wilderness. But now look at this. Here's consequences. Will they not return to Egypt? Egypt represents their bondage. They're returning to their bondage. Will they not return to their bondage? And will not Assyria rule over them? And Assyria did rule over them. Because they refused to repent... Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates, and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. Even if they turn from the Lord for a time, he will by no means exalt them. And friends, that is for a time. But now hear the rest of God's heart. Verse 8. And he's talking to you. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboam? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man. Did you see that? For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. He says, because I am not God, I'm not going to execute the justice you deserve. That's what he's saying right here. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And that's not a negative thing. It's a call to come home. Call back, come back to mama. Come back to the secure place. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. And my friends, that's been happening in Israel right now. A nation that was destroyed in 70 AD has suddenly become the epicenter of world events and will be cataclysmic cataclysmic up until our Lord's appearing.
My goodness, two cell phones this morning. I could tell during worship there was something wrong in the house. I could feel it during my teaching. What is going on this morning? Somebody rewrote chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 in a way that makes it a very meaningful prayer. This is old, but it's good. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. For as surely as the dawn, he will come. And as the dewdrops kiss the morning grass, so he will come to his own. My faithfulness to thee had faded away. Like a cloud, I could not stand before the sun. I was broken, but then you came and you made me whole again. Oh, come, let us return to the Lord. Yada, the intimate embrace. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. For as surely as the dawn, he will come. And as the dewdrops kiss the morning grass, so he will come. My faithfulness to thee had faded away like a cloud. I could not stand before the sun. I was broken, but then you came and you made me whole again. Oh, come, let us return to the Oh, come, let us return to the Lord. Let the river flow, let the river flow. Holy Spirit, come, move in power. Let the river flow. Let the river flow, let the river flow. That's the word of God. I do apologize for comedy on the cell phones. It wasn't very graceful of me. 
But I hope you heard God's love this morning. I hope you did. Would you consider your response to God? Alan, I'm going to invite you guys up. Let's bring this to a close and let's consider our response to the Lord.